thank you so much, Jason and Forrest, for joining me today. Very excited to to chat about your individual journeys and, and also Tello Trucks, which just from the looks of it, the research I've done, I mean, it looks amazing. It looks beautiful. It looks sort of like what the EV market, you know, needs. Um, and it's it's probably an interesting path that you've both been on. So Jason, if we want to start with you first, you want to kind of talk a little bit about your journey, you know, before Tello and, and what was that sort of career arc like for you? Yeah, well, I'll start back a little bit. Um, so I built my first vehicle from scratch when I was 13 years old. Um, <laughs> built my second one from scratch when I was 16 years old. And they were both massive death traps. So I went to school to learn how to build a safer vehicle. Ended up working on vehicle safety and developing a lot of the radar and LIDAR systems that went on to what are today's ADAS-based vehicles on the road. So worked with a lot of the major OEMs to make sure that they actually built safe driver assistance features on their 2024 model model year vehicle. So it's super cool for me to actually see a lot of the projects that I worked on finally on the road this year wow. um, after having worked on them for a decade of time. So we worked on some of the very, very first like wafer level chips that went into radar systems that are now finally rolling off the shelves. So it was a pretty cool journey. Yeah, I've been uh, a passionate about electric vehicles also since uh, high school. And uh, I, I translated that into um, I had a science teacher who got me excited about solar cars. And hmm. then when I went to college, um, I joined the solar car team and, and ended up being a leader of that solar car team. And a lot of the team went on and became the early team at Tesla. Since then, I, I, uh, I started an electric motorcycle company and, uh, and an app company and, and this company. Well, what was the, the catalyst for Tello? Was it you calling Jason? Was it vice versa? Was it, I guess, how did that idea generate? You know, yeah. was it from a phone call? Force yeah. was introduced to me via a mutual friend. Um, I was actually, I was, was working at my previous company. I was really thinking about city commuting a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had been to Southeast Asia and all over the world. And I'd seen a lot of the world moving to two-wheel transport. And that just being such an efficient way to move, uh, to migrate within a city. And mm -hmm. I thought that maybe the reason that the U.S. is struggling so much with city transport is because we haven't really presented a viable option for two-wheel transport that the American market could get behind. And so since Forrest had started uh, Mission Motors, one of the very first electric motorcycle companies based in the Bay Area, and he's working on micromobility at the time as well, I thought that it would be awesome just to sit with him and pick his brain about this whole process. And, you know, he was thinking that, hey, I... I can help you with some of this work. I've got some battery technology that could make a really, really space efficient two-wheel vehicle. And so we built and set out to build a, a motorcycle actually at the time. This was back in 2018. Hmm. So I'll turn my camera back on so you can see. I know your listeners can't see it. But um, we actually built that vehicle sitting in the back of our, our yeah. shop. And it was a extremely space efficient you know, 100 mile on the freeway vehicle that you could actually pick up and throw in the back of your truck with a single person. So that was the idea of something that you would like have the ability to to transport in a city, carry up your stairs if you had to, but also take you on the freeway for 100 miles. And uh, our hypothesis proved incorrect. So we... Um, we went out and we had developed all this. We've been heads down for a while, self-funding this project. And we developed all this technology that really made it possible to do this. And when we went to go survey the market, the market just wasn't there. Hmm. Um, we realized very quickly thereafter 
there had been something like 5,000 electric motorcycles sold in all of 2021 um, in the U.S. And it, would, it was just not something that the American consumer was getting excited about. But we developed all this technology to enable us to build these super space efficient vehicles that we surveyed San Francisco, L.A. and a few other cities over a weekend about what type of space efficient vehicle would actually cause the biggest impact, like positive impact in somebody's life. Yep. And 89% of those surveyed said a small truck would be <laughs> yeah. the right answer for them. And we like realized we had like an aha moment. So we, we dug into it. We were like, why aren't there small trucks anymore? Right. Like the number one best selling vehicle in America in the 90s and 2000s was a small truck. It was like those those um, Ford, uh, Ford Rangers and the Toyota yep. SR5s, if you remember them. Yep. No, even I was going to say even like the, the first trucks, like the F1 and like the Chevys in the early 50s and the Fords in the 50s were all very small, very small trucks. You know, they weren't these big automobiles and those were like, you know, everywhere. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful automobiles, those small trucks. Yeah, we love them. And, you know, there's still a huge market for them, honestly. Like uh, one of our neighbors just purchased a fleet of uh, 2000 Ford Rangers and he spent over the original MSRP for that fleet of vehicles. Wow. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah. But um, so we realized that there were no small trucks on the road and we saw that the market was transitioning to these massive 20 foot long trucks. The average size of an American pickup truck is three king size mattresses and it's stacked end to end. Like it's, it's in the average price is $60,000. It's, it's wild yeah. what's become of this. But um, we just assumed it was the mentality that Americans all loved giant trucks. It was like, just like, it's a thing you would assume, right? Americans are just hoorah, big trucks. It's um, definitely marketed that way. Definitely. And what, you're exactly right. And we found out it was actually far more complicated and nuanced than that. And it's really um, surprised us in learning how it actually came about. So the story actually starts in the 1970s when the EPA was created mm. and the Environmental Protection Agency set a bunch of standards for saving gas because there was a gas crisis mid-1970s. So they told automakers, you have to build more fuel-efficient vehicles. And that, that kind of led to the first kind of set of uh, standards for fuel economy. But they only applied to what they called at the time passenger vehicles. So they exempted mm. light-duty trucks from that from that classification. So a lot of automakers started pivoting and building a lot of trucks and building SUVs and calling them trucks and getting away with pretty much pretty poor fuel economy in vehicles for a long, long time. And what happened was in 2010, the EPA said, okay, that's enough automakers. We're going to start putting these regulations for trucks. And so they actually gave the automakers a series of regulations. But what, what those regulations were when you looked into them was it actually gave you breaks on how fuel economic your vehicle could be if you built your vehicle larger. The idea was that if you built like a semi-truck style vehicle for the workers, it could it could burn way more fuel. It could be far less fuel efficient than a small uh, truck could be because that's maybe more for consumers or, or really people yeah. that were working around you know smaller projects. But in reality, what happened was these automakers looked at this set of requirements and went, well, I can't really build my motors more efficient, or it's really a lot of energy to do that. Let me just make my vehicle six inches longer, and then I pass standard. Then I pass the standards, and so we actually plotted like the the transition between the 2000 Ford Ranger to today's Ford Ranger, hmm. and its footprint has grown almost three feet longer and a foot wider in that time. I want to kind of touch on force for a second too with the battery aspect of of all this because it seems like this is the brain of the operations and i guess talk about you know battery battery packs like where we are now obviously you did the mission motor sort of battery and, and sort of since then how is sort of the battery graduated for evs like where are we at in the evolution that's a great question um 
So I would say, let's see, some interesting. So there's always some interesting, there's always really exciting battery stuff like on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you look kind of historically, uh, battery packs have, well, batteries cells have been increasing at a pretty steady rate. And just to, you know, as an example, like the first cells that I was working with in 2005, uh, wow. some yeah. cells were like two amp hours for an 18650. And now, um, that same 18650 is somewhere around, you know, you can get them, you know, probably three times that energy density. So there, there has been a lot of increase um, of, of capacity and it's going to continue. It's continuing on that trend. So it doesn't seem like it's uh, hitting any physical barriers. And there's always kind of the hope of a big step change, but that step change hasn't really materialized yet. So I certainly know lots of people working on it. But some of the fundamentals stay the same. So I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's maybe where I'll go is that one of the things that's kind of interesting from what we're doing is that, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of the 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 kind of um type of battery pack that Tesla builds. They fuse every cell and they use the standard size cell that the world kind of uses. Now once they got big enough, they they started to develop their own, of course, but um, you haven't, what's kind of interesting actually is you haven't really seen that cell, the four, I'm talking about the 4680, you haven't really seen that in a large amount of vehicles yet. Um, and I don't know why that is, but it, what I do know is that it is very difficult to manufacture these cells, you know, and get this kind of like multiple nines of 99.999% uh, percent kind of reliability and, and homogeneity. So, so the cells are, are mass manufactured in these lights out factories and so you really want to use them because they they're the most reliable and the and the most energy that you can get for your dollar Mm, and they're also by having a small form factor and fusing them fusing each cell you get a really safe reliable pack and that's something that the the large oems didn't really realize in the early days and and some of them have gone back that way but a lot of them have been fighting this fight of trying to use large format cells and the problem with large format cells is that yeah, well, first of all, the reason they use them is because they've been kind of um, on this philosophy of lowering p- part count at any means possible. So it's a way to increase uh, reliability of your vehicle and lower costs is just lower the amount of parts, you know, in total. But when it comes to batteries, that's actually a problem because if you have these really large cells, they tend to be less reliable hmm. for a number of reasons, you know, happy to go into. Um, but you can, but one is just a, just a, electrical connection method you can imagine if you have 90 small cells in parallel if you lose one of those cells you actually only you you're only losing uh, a very small amount of energy and you're only limiting your current of it by 190th but if you have maybe two or three really large cells in parallel and one of those goes out you pretty much you know you incapacitate your vehicle because you, you really lower the amount of current that you can draw and they're very hard to replace. So, yeah, that was that was a big question I had is sort of replacement versus battery life versus, I guess, normally when we think of, you know, batteries on 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 phones, right, there's sort of this this expectation of life and speed of charging, things like that. I guess what is the the lifespan of, let's say, a Tello battery, you know, in the truck when when we see them? So let me just back up a little bit. So the cell phone, um, the cell phone and laptop computer batteries are. Uh, kind of an example of what I was talking about with the larger format is that even though they're small devices, they're generally like, you know, one pouch cell that's maybe has several 
several cells in series or, or parallel. It's a you know it's a small circuit, but it's a it's a fairly large cell for that circuit. Hmm. Gotcha. So what happens if there's any failure on one of those? You know, let's say there's five cells in series or two cells in parallel or something. There's there's no there's no backup, right? Like if you lose any capacity, mm-hmm. I see. Really, it really affects the device. Gotcha. And, and the devices are kind of designed, you know, they're really maximizing it, everything, and they're putting a lot of heat into those cells. So it's the cells are not thermally managed very well. Um, there's few of them, and they're pushing them to their exact, their farthest limit. Like, you know, you're really doing a full depth of discharge every day. The cool thing that electric vehicles have going for them is that if you get the range that you want for, in our example, over 350 miles, you have a large enough pack over 100 kilowatt hours of pack that you actually very rarely do a full depth of discharge. And that the lifespan of a battery is it's kind of logarithmic based on your depth of discharge. So if you're just, you know, doing a depth of discharge of, you know, 10%, you're going to last 100 times longer than if you're doing it at 100%. So most daily driver, you know, that so everything good kind of like flows to the laws of averages where the average drive in the US is something around 24 miles Mm -hmm. um, a day. And so with 350 miles of range, you're just never really going to see that daily full depth of discharge. By depth of discharge, you mean sort of waiting till it's batteries at 5% to charge it versus at 75%, you, you you know, you charge it as well. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and cars also um, have the ability to kind of limit that top five or ten percent, which you'll notice in in mm-hmm. a lot of vehicles. They allow you to do that, and that really affects uh, mostly the calendar life. So if your car is just sitting there and you're not using it, um, you don't want it to degrade over time. And uh, lowering that top few percent really helps that. So coming back to like the the Tello battery pack itself, um, what's really important about what we do is that our battery pack is extremely space efficient. So we have a lot of technology that goes into making our battery pack. We have 106 kilowatt hours in the footprint of a two-door Mini Cooper. And if you look at that vehicle, the electric version of that vehicle, it's a third the the range of ours. So we have a lot of technology that went into making that battery extremely space efficient. So that's one part of the story. Uh, It's a lot of the development that Forrest did over the last few years with us. And then the second part of the story is that how we actually thermal manage the battery. And that goes to what you were saying around calendar life of the battery. Not only does the battery have to, you know, maintain in its most promising operating range, but it also has to keep the cells at a ho- not just within their t- operating temperature range, but also when the vehicle is off, keep the cells cells mm. at the same temperature across the board. Gotcha. That's the, the, it's not that the cells get hot and cold that really kill a battery pack. It's that one cell gets a lot hotter than another cell potentially adjacent to it that really kills a battery pack. Because every single cell, Forrest likes to say this, I know I'm stealing <laughs> this a little bit. Forrest likes to say every single cell is its own little chemistry project. And so when you add heat, take away heat, do things to that cell differently than other cells, you get a different response in each of those cells. And as you change each of those cells ever so slightly from one another, it changes the electrical properties of that cell. So you're pulling and drawing more current from those. And as those diverge more and more over time, it's almost a compounding effect. So temperature is the number one thing you can keep constant between those cells. And we do an incredible job of actually maintaining temperature consistency throughout the entire pack, which is so important and not only lifespan, but the actual performance of that battery pack. Mm, That's interesting. Going back to kind of my comparison in the beginning of kind of the two different paths you take with these large prismatic cells or, or a bunch of small cylindrical cells. That's another advantage, actually, is that on the thermal side, those large format cells are, are terrible at thermal management. And most of the thermal management happens through the tabs that the electricity is flowing through. And so what you what you have is you just have a lot different of a environment 
happening near the tabs than you have in the rest of the battery. Whereas in the small cylindrical cells, um, the tabs are connected to the case on the negative side. And so you get a really nice direct thermal connection and you get a lot more connection throughout the whole pack. So there's just a whole variety of reasons that I've learned over my career uh, to stick to stick with the cylindrical cells, fuse every cell, thermally manage them actively when you're when you're charging and discharging. But the but the thing that we're doing that I think is cool on this pack that that I haven't seen on any other pack is that we passively balance them uh, in a very effective way for that 94% of the time where the car is actually sitting there not getting used yeah. at all. That's the part that That's really... That's the big innovation in progress is more cell temperature management, making sure each cell acts the same for the longest amount of time rather than one kind of one kind of drifting off and doing its own thing that affects the rest of the the pack and so that's that's a hard one to market to because (laughs) what what that's going to give us is is longer lifespan and higher reliability and that's that's our goal uh for the brand like a very useful a very repairable vehicle that can last for a really long time because it's it's it is literally a utility it is we're designing this thing to function for utility Yep. Pre-orders are, are on the site. Like, where are we at in production cycle? When can we actually, like, people will get them shipped to them. We can see these bad boys on the road. Yeah. I mean, seeing seeing the bad boys on the road and giving, sending them to customers are two different dates, right? Just want to make sure I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure, clear sure. on that. Um, so we have a drivable vehicle, a drivable prototype you can see on our Instagram cha- uh, channel. We've been torture testing it recently. That's our, our skateboard chassis. That's really our test bed for most of our platform, our battery pack, our drivetrain, everything. The next stage of our company is really getting a fully functional press vehicle with all the fit and finish in the hands of a bunch of people so they can actually experience the vehicle and really understand how we do what we do. Mm-hmm. So that that's anticipated the, uh, this year. Following that, is the our pre-production schedule for our first set of vehicles. And our first set of vehicles anticipated rolling off a lot at the end of next year. Obviously, I don't want to make any firm promises on exactly what, what day that is. Sure. But that's what our schedule looks like as we sit right now. One big question I had circled is I wanted to talk about the OS. Will Tello have its own OS in the system? Will it integrate someone else's OS? Will you partner with an OS system? Like, what, I guess, what is the thought process of, of having your own operating system? So we, have, we haven't signed our specific documents. I don't want to give any names or sure. things like that in that response. But so the, the core piece of our value proposition of our company is we're building an extremely utilitarian small vehicle. Like the thing that does everything a full a mid-sized truck does in the footprint of a two-door Mini Cooper. Mm-hmm. And so all of the decisions we make, our design decisions are geared around that utilitarian factor. And we're not going over the top with a lot of other features on top of that. So the parts that we develop ourselves are the battery pack, this chassis, the safety system on our vehicle that allows us to get five-star crash rating despite not having a long hood, and the packaging of the people in the vehicle. A lot of the software components for the infotainment and for the user experience are a prepackaged system that comes off the shelf with our manufacturing partner that we're working with. So again, a lot of that is kind of not public information yet, so I won't share too much, but really we stick to what we do best, and that's build battery packs, build safety systems, design our vehicle, and package our vehicle. You mentioned earlier when we talked was was sort of the the, the two-wheel vehicle that you initially set out to build. Um, and when, you know, you sort of did the market research and transferred over to the idea of trucks, is that when you set out to go raise some capital for Tello? 
um, because that transition was going to be a little bit larger than, than sort of expected and the market was just way bigger. And so, hey, let's go raise some capital here. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story, actually. We were in the midst of raising capital to try to scale our vehicle because we'd already <laughs> developed our first, uh, our first vehicle. We were getting close to ready for production of that motorcycle. So we just needed the capital to get there. And then we realized that, oh man, we're pivoting. And so we were halfway through a discussion with our first venture fund that funded us. And we were like, hey guys, I got to tell you something. We're pivoting <laughs> and here's why. And they actually kind of love to hear that. They're like, okay, well you went out and talked to customers and you figured out what they're doing and you realized you were on a bad path. Like, great. This shows that you actually are really dedicated to this and you really, really want to understand your customers in this problem. And so that's when we got our first check-in. When you did that that research again, like, you know, I know we talked we, we talked about you know, city sort of transportation and, and city um, life. So who who is like sort of the customer you think? We have a lot of information about our customers. So we have 2,500 pre-orders, paid pre-orders right now. And we have a pretty good understanding of where they come from. So in terms of the top five, it's who you might expect. Mm-hmm. It's Los Angeles, uh, San Jose, New York City, uh, Washington, D.C. area, Seattle, and San Francisco. That's really the top kind of demographic of the first few um, people. It's usually between the ages of 24 and 38. It's it's about uh, 60-40 men and women. So it's it's kind of like that millennial city goer that you might expect to, to see. But what's really surprising to us is how many people uh, made pre-orders from places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Hmm. So we had like Montana cattle farmers that place pre-orders because they I can are see that, trying to yeah I can see that because they use those like four like those four wheelers essentially to kind of get around right but exactly this might be a little bit better because it has more storage i guess for them and it can go on the freeway and it can go drive up to a gas station off the trailer it up to a gas station like there's a lot mm-hmm. of advantages it has all the capability of what a, you might consider a side-by-side but it's also mm-hmm. a, a road-going safe truck that can go on the freeway we've got other people like that uh we, had, we have all great all sorts of great stories but one of our customers owns a canoe um tour guide out of maine mm. um they have seasonal tours they do throughout maine and they're really uh, eco-conscious because it's a beautiful area out there and they were very interested in kind of moving to a fleet of telos to move to run their operations so we have a lot of people that you wouldn't necessarily like at first expect to see but there's this huge demand for the utility of a truck in a footprint that actually makes sense. And again, that comes back to this whole automakers forced to build big trucks left a hole in the market for small trucks. And people have been just craving for something that actually meets their needs in that space. How large is the is the bed? And like, what can, I guess, I mean, you mentioned a canoe. That's, that's pretty big. I mean, that's a pretty big thing you can fit into the bed of the truck. Our truck bed as it exists, like today, has yep. a five-foot bed. Yep. But it has a mid-gate that folds completely flat, meaning that you could have a full eight foot of space with the tailgate up. To th- you can fit a full 4 by 8 sheet of plywood or stacks of 4 by 8 sheet of, four by eight sheet of plywood in the back of our vehicle with the tailgate up. So a lot of storage capability in this tiny footprint. And I saw that you can kind of almost, I guess, like a Jeep Wrangler where you can cover it. Like, is there a piece that goes around it That's where right. you can cover it yep. up where it kind of then looks like the... You know, the bed's covered up, or obviously you're sort of more seating or more protection for things that you're, you're lugging around. Does that come with all Tellos or is that sort of an added? So we we will have that be a, 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 our top cover. It's a factory installed option. One of the things I hate about my truck is that you have to go through a third party to get in a factory like ah, tonneau yeah. cover installed. So this is a factory option and it can double as a cab for as the SUV version of our vehicle. Yep. So you could have a third row of seats 
in our vehicle and it can have it has the glass that meets the standard requirement for crash safety so it will actually be an suv version of our vehicle and that's the the last thing i kind of want to touch on is just the design aspect i mean it's a beautiful automobile i think well obviously a lot of thought design process has gone into you know obviously the truck part but also you know have it coverable have all these different things like talk about the design of it the aspect i guess your other co-founder has the design background brought him on like to me this is the biggest part of all of this it's kind of i think what tesla did right you know they weren't the first electric vehicle they were just the first one that actually made it look good and that's what i think brought a lot of attention to it early on yeah i mean eve would be the best to to talk about that um but i'll just say a few words because i'd worked with eve before um on the mission motors project what we really love about eve is he has this modern design aesthetic which we think really yeah but it's also like it's it's not overly complex. Like it really distills things down to a, a very clean, uh, simple, modern uh, aesthetic that really fits with the city. And we really felt like it just, you know, we wanted to not have like, we felt like a lot of trucks out there have a bunch of badging and, you know, crinkles mm-hmm. and like a bunch of like fluff. And we really want to have a truck that is serious and strong and beautiful. The last question I have is really about next three to five years, a little bit about the future and sort of the goals that you, know, you guys would like to hit as a company. When you guys sit down and talk about these these goals for sort of three to five years down the road, what do you talk about? What are some of the pressing things that, that you want to try to, to hit and succeed on? Yeah, well, one thing we talk about a lot is the market, right? And if we, you know, we look at the, the city truck market, mm-hmm. there's actually 3 million pickup trucks that are purchased every year in downtown U.S. cities. So it's about $200 billion spent on on trucks in downtown cities. And we feel that we can make a major impact, not only in the efficiency of cities, but also in the environmental impact mm-hmm. of these cities by switching as many of these vehicles over to a Tello footprint as possible. Because you know, one thing we didn't realize when we started this project was that out of all carbon emissions in the U.S. across every single economic sector, light-duty trucks constitute 10.5% of them. So a double-digit wow. percentage of the carbon emissions in the U.S. come from light-duty trucks. And that's a massive dent we could make in, in the environmental impact just, just by switching over to light-duty trucks. So that's one big thing we talk about, getting as many people on board excited, driving the Tello vehicle as possible. So really scaling as quickly as we can, but doing so in a very profitable way that doesn't get us into a trap that a lot of other EV companies have fallen into over the last 20 years. The other thing that we talk about is the, the innovations we made in our vehicle packaging, in our battery technology, in our safe technology. It doesn't have to just apply to light-duty trucks. Like we have other plants mm. that look at you know different types of vehicles, you know, vans, SUVs, hatchbacks, even commercial vehicles that really could benefit from the same type of thinking that we've employed for the truck. The truck is really our milestone because it makes the most impact when we say we have a full-size truck with the cap- capability of a full-size truck and the footprint of a two-door Mini Cooper. Everybody goes, wow. Yeah. How'd you do that? That's incredible. But but we can do that same thing for other classes of vehicles. And so that that will be really sort of a, a main goal down the future is kind of bring out more of a product line. That's definitely in the cards. Absolutely. Um, but really, we want to just have people rethink transportation in general. We want to shrink the footprint mm-hmm. of mobility. And that kind of goes back to like the mission we have of, and when I say shrink the footprint, I think it, it's really a double meaning. It's, it's 
the physical size footprint and it's the environmental footprint that these vehicles leave. And those go hand in hand with one another in many ways. Like if you look at the electric pickup trucks that are on the road today, they weigh upwards of 8,000, 9,000 pounds. Yeah. They have yeah. you know 200 kilowatt hours that has so much raw materials that goes into them from lithium, cobalt, and nickel that is just incredibly taxing on you know mines and the environment. And they are tearing up streets. Their tires are, are being, particles are going into roadways. They're really not that much more efficient than other vehicles on the road. And if you look at the amount of energy required to pump into those vehicles, they bur- they actually burn more CO2 per mile driven than like a small gas car does. And that's hmm. not the way to a sustainable future. So if you, if you can rethink the footprint, the function, the form of the vehicle and do so in a way that's actually really making that impact you want to make, um, I think that you can really make a real a good stand in the future of automotive. Forrest, did you want to add anything? I've been working in the electric vehicle industry, you know, since... 2005. Um, and in those early days, it really felt like, oh, you know, can we convince people electric vehicles are here? And then and then when it was successful, <laughs> it was like, oh, right, all the automakers are just going to follow suit. And it's like, everything's going to be electrified. It's going to happen so fast. And that really hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a it's a huge opportunity ahead of us. And it we know that this works. We know that it's they're fun to drive, that they last a long time. And we have to fill in like the rest of the of the auto the vehicle market, right? Like yeah. we have everything has to be electrified, and we have to do it as soon as we can. So, like we have all the tools, the demand is there, and we've just got to do it. It's a kind of an exciting. Uh, it's going to be the next twenty years are going to be twenty years of everything getting electrified. Last qu- last question, real quick. Where's the name come from? So, so Tello T E L O S is the Greek word for purpose. So everything we're doing for our vehicle is really building it for a purpose. Very nice. So we're building purposeful trucks. Love it, man. Love it. Well, congrats on the success so far. You know, best luck for for the next decade to come, fellas. And, uh, you know, keep up the great work. You know, hopefully everything is goes as good as it can from here as far as production and, and getting these things out to... Uh, to buyers so they look amazing obviously your backgrounds are primed to to make uh an amazing truck but also more vehicles to come so so best of luck to you and the team thank you right, thank you really so much appreciate it.